every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday, the final one of the month. It's the 30th of January, 2024, and this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to Money Talk for an update on the latest business and finance headlines from across Asia. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, a Hong Kong court has ordered China Evergrande to be wound up after it was unable to come up with a restructuring plan that would satisfy international creditors, despite months of talks. Evergrande has about 327 billion US dollars in liabilities. And while Evergrande is listed in Hong Kong, almost all of its assets and the vast majority of its liabilities are in China. In theory, the ruling could pave the way for liquidators to attempt to seize control of some Evergrande assets in mainland China, since Hong Kong has a mutual recognition agreement on insolvency and restructuring that applies in some parts of China. China has moved to officially limit short selling. The China Securities Regulatory Commission said that starting yesterday, there will be a complete suspension of the lending of restricted stocks. Investors who buy shares will not be allowed to lend them out for short selling within an agreed lockup period, the Shanghai and Shenzhen bosses said on Sunday. And the measures are designed to create a fairer market order, the CSRC said. China plans to merge three of the nation's biggest bad debt managers into sovereign wealth fund China Investment Corps. Three asset management companies, Cinder, China Cinder Asset Management, China Orient Asset Management and China Great Wall, will be incorporated into CIC. China set up a quartet of bad debt managers in 1999 to clean up banking sector debt following the Asian financial crisis. But the distressed asset managers expanded beyond their initial remit and then themselves began to pose a risk to the financial system. In the US, the Federal Open Market Committee will begin its two-day monetary policy meeting later today and deliver its decision in the early hours of Thursday morning, Hong Kong time. Traders in the Fed Fund's futures markets are assigning an almost 98% probability that the Fed will leave rates unchanged at the upcoming meeting. However, markets are pricing a 45% chance of an interest rate cut in March, which is down from 85% a week ago, and a total of 133 basis points of cuts in 2020. 24, which is down from 165 basis points a week earlier. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Karine Hearn, Partner and Chief Sustainability Officer at East Capital Group, and our US Economics Correspondent, Writer and Broadcaster, Barry Wood. Please do get in touch by going to my website and posting any questions or comments there, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, or on Facebook, at Peter Lewis Money Talk, on X, I'm at Money Talk R3. On Wall Street Monday, US stocks advanced at the start of a week that will include the Federal Reserve's first interest rate decision of the year, the latest domestic jobs report, and quarterly results from the biggest tech companies. The S&P 500 climbed 0.8% to a new record high of 4,928. The Dow also reached an all-time high, adding 224 points, or 0.6%, to close at 38,333. The Nasdaq Composite gained 1.1% and settled at 15,628. Bonds rallied, sparked by news that the US Treasury Department expects to borrow $760 billion in the first quarter. That's below the previous estimate of $815 billion. As a result, the yield on the 10-year Treasury note fell six basis points to 4.08%. 
The US dollar index was unchanged. The dollar was 0.4% weaker against the yen at 147.5. And in Shanghai, the dollar rose 0.1% against the yuan to 7.18 renminbi. Gold rallied to end near the session, the higher the session as the dollar reversed course. It closed 0.6% higher at $2,031 an ounce. And Brent crude oil settled 2.1% lower at $81.83 a barrel on Monday. Chinese equities lagged behind regional peers on Monday after a Hong Kong court ordered property developer Evergrande to be wound up. China's benchmark CSI 300 index shed 0.9% despite new restrictions on short selling of Shanghai and Shenzhen stocks. Hong Kong's Hang Seng index edged up 125 points or 0.6% to 16,077. Healthcare and technology stocks led the declines after a US lawmaker proposed a bill to ban Chinese biotechnology companies from doing business with the US government. Wuxi Aptec tumbled 10.6% in Hong Kong. Zhongzhi Inolite declined 10.5% in Shenzhen. And TCL Zhongzhuan fell 10% as well. Trading in the Hong Kong-listed shares of Evergrande and two of its subsidiaries was halted after the High Court's ruling. And before the trading halt and following the court order, shares in Evergrande fell almost 21% to just 16 Hong Kong cents, while outstanding dollar bonds issued by the developer traded at deeply distressed levels. One bond maturing in 2025 was trading at less than two cents on the dollar. And subsidiaries Evergrande Property Services and Evergrande New Energy Vehicle Group also called for trading halts according to filings with the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to slide this morning about 120 points according to futures markets, uh, projected to open about 15,960. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. It's a Tuesday morning, plenty to get through this morning. So let's welcome our guests. Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia is with us. Morning, Mark. Good morning, Peter. And also joining Good evening, us. Barry. <laughs> and also joining us once again, Corrine Hearn, Partner and Chief Sustainability Officer at East Capital Group. Nice to see and hear you, Corrine. Good morning. And of course, as always on a Tuesday morning over in Washington, D.C., we have Barry Wood, our U.S. economics correspondent. And it's become a tradition to get the Washington, D.C. weather forecast before we start the show. Cold, raw, winter. (laughs) Not good. Three bad words. But could be worse. The snow is gone. Okay. Well, at least you're comfortable there. They're great. Now, look, a Hong Kong court here has ordered China Evergrande to be wound up after it was unable to come up with a restructuring plan that would satisfy international creditors. That's despite months of talks. Um, High Court Judge Linda Chan issued the order on Monday, eight weeks after the debt-laden property developer won a surprise reprieve in the long-running lawsuit. Since then, Evergrande, which has about $327 billion in liabilities, has made little progress towards clinching a restructuring agreement. And Judge Chan said, I consider that it's appropriate for the court to make make a winding up order against the company, and I so order. And the judge's order will allow a liquidator to attempt to take control of Evergrande's assets outside of China, including Hong Kong-listed subsidiaries and that were part of the failed restructuring negotiations. 
Now, Evergrande's listed in Hong Kong, but almost all of its assets and the vast majority of its more than 300 billion in liabilities are in China. And in theory, the ruling could pave the way for liquidators to attempt to seize control of some Evergrande assets in mainland China, since Hong Kong does have a mutual recognition agreement on insolvency and restructuring that applies in some parts of China. And Mark, it's not a surprise, this, is it? But nevertheless, I suppose it does now that we've reached um, a denouement in the, in the case of the, uh, the Hong Courts anyway, Hong Kong courts anyway. It puts this all in sharp relief, doesn't it? Just how difficult this problem is going to be for uh, property developers on the mainland. It does, and it, and it has direct effect on a lot of the companies we work with because even if they're not directly related to the property business, some of them are in in various ways. Some of them have have rented have, have relationships with Evergrande, and of course other property companies. Some of which are also in in trouble or or you know are are questionable, and so this just adds to the uh, to the uh, to the unease that's that's going on uh, in the in the China economy. I, there's some bright spots as well, but this doesn't this doesn't help. It needs to the the development isn't that unexpected. It still does put it in sharp relief, as you indicated. And of course, this liquidation process, it's going to highlight just what little legal protection is probably afforded to to offshore investors of, of Chinese assets. Exactly. If I, if I may co- come in here, I think it's it's actually very interesting. I mean, uh, as you said, this is not a surprise. But the question now is, how is this going to be implemented? Uh, 90% of Evergrande assets are onshore. A lot of them own or operated by, by local units. So uh, I think there is much more at stake now than what is – I mean, first of all, the size – of this uh, company is just unprecedented. So the liquidation itself is unprecedented. Uh, so how is going to take place? I mean, we will expect probably this to take place. Of course, it's not going to be quick. It's going to take uh, uh, several years. Uh, but the the, uh, the the real question, I think, as well, is how Hong Kong as a as a place for where you know the judgment, the legal, the legal judgment has been uh, has been uh, uh, announced. How will this be enforced in in mainland China? And uh, this is also happening at a time, of course, when we have this really acute pessimisms around uh, around China in general, and and especially for for the real estate. Uh, I take actually the 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 positive side of it that maybe uh, this is also what needs to to take place before uh, we can get somewhat to a more like constructive sentiment around uh, around the sector and, and and around China because this has been lying really like a like a you know like a wet blanket. Um, so, but but the, but obviously, I think. Every Everyone is aware of the the issue because of its stake, but also the fact that there's so many unfinished property projects around China, and especially within within Evergrande, and of course all these contractors, uh, subcontractors that need to be paid uh, at a time again of of course of a, of a fairly weak uh, economy in in China. So the the big question really is how Beijing itself uh, will try or not try to intervene and and see where where I mean some some problems Probably, you know, some aspects of it, uh, they will need to to come and intervene so that they don't want to end up in a situation where there's social arrest across the country. But the the, the more they do towards Evergrande, uh, the more they would have to do toward maybe other real estate developers in the future and everything. So it's very complicated and worth uh, following very closely for sure. Yeah, I just want to add to that. I, of course, I 
I agree. I also think it's a test of how Beijing and Hong Kong will cooperate. Exactly. Uh, you know, especially going forward. Of course, we've heard a little bit about the judicial cooperation. We'll see how that goes, but also among regulators. And this is another another test of that. But uh, isn't it true, Mark, that surely this was coordinated between the Hong Kong authorities and the Chinese authorities? Yeah, oh, sure. But it's a, it's a question now how, how it works going forward, you know, how it actually is implemented or not implemented. This barrier is making international headlines, of course, including over there. I, I guess, you know, it's just yet another reason for international investors based in the US for, for not being positive on Chinese stocks and not wanting to, to get involved in the Chinese stock market at the moment. Absolutely. I just I don't think anything more can be said than what you've just said. Uh, clearly, I think international investors will stand back and wait to see how this begins to play out. Do you think, Mark and Corrine, that this could finally prompt Beijing to try and come up with a solution for the property developers? Because um, someone somewhere, these losses are going to have to be written down, aren't they? Someone somewhere is going to have to bear the losses. The only balance sheet that is big enough and clean enough to take those losses is the central governments. Do you think it's going to prompt them to try and finally come to grips with the problem, which is not something they've really been willing to do so far? Well, I think the whole issue with real estate developers starts because of Beijing's decision to rein in uh, what had been seen and was, um, and for sure was, um, you know, like uncontrolled growth and uh, of debt and and uh, and uh, creating oversupply in the industry. So uh, I, I think that that actually, uh, in a way, uh, they've already done. What it was needed. Uh, what is interesting is that for you know a lot of issues, a lot of these big companies, there's always this thing about oh it's too big to fail, and uh, you've got to be you've got to give it actually to Beijing that uh, it's been. Um, I mean they they uh, they have made a decision to to act and uh, it's a very brave one uh, with a lot of implications and consequences and uh, and a difficult challenging one for sure uh, but I, I think at this stage they cannot start like track you know back down and say that oh so we shouldn't have done that or it's too late I mean it's so they should just I think they would just have to implement and and keep going uh, for quite some time and it's going to be for sure painful because the whole issue of course with with estate sectors in China is the fact that a lot of this debt is actually also somewhat related to more the fact that people, you know, prepay for their apartments. So if there is no more trust in the system, uh, what is already a, um, a challenged sector in terms of, of appetite for from Chinese consumers, it's going to completely vanish, of course, because who would you, I mean, how it's like, it's like exactly in a way that, that you have a bank run in a, in a system and you don't want to put your money in the bank because you don't don't trust the bank anymore. It's exactly the same. Mm. Uh, so uh, it's. Um, I think. I think what what the Chinese government would have to do eventually is kind of really completely reform the system uh, with this prepaid um, model, uh, not uh, sustainable uh, going mm. forward. And if they don't change the system, you know, it's it will the, the market itself will 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 go through like a structural correction uh, and a multi-year decline, which has already started, but it, it will go on for a long time. Mark has, I suppose, you would think this would have to accelerate what the Chinese government has to do. And Corrine sort of outlined what some of the options are. Some of those aren't going to happen tomorrow, but I think they have to 
have to indicate that they are trying to move and and move in ways that might help alleviate alleviate the issues because it this will just put it more in focus and make people more uh, more nervous, frankly. The problem is, uh, Mark, the, the Chinese government doesn't have a new plan, does it really, for property <laughs> developers as to how they are going to fund themselves, given that the old model, as Queen says, doesn't work anymore. Um, but we don't have a new model yet. No, uh, apparently not. When you say a new plan, we're in, we're in campaign season in the US and all the candidates have plans, some of which aren't very clear, and 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 in this case as well. But I think I think this might we'll see what happens. Might put added pressure on the government to come up with something more specific. Mm. I'm not sure if we'll get a a, one a thing, detailed plan. Yeah, one thing sure looked at from afar. It's hard to see how this can bolster consumer confidence in China. Yeah. And I would think that has to be a priority for the authorities because uh, the consumer has got to feel good about the future if he's going to get out of this sort of hunker down mentality. And mm. uh, I mean, does the big bank, I suppose this is the classic dilemma of any government. Do you come in big and thus terif potentially terrify people saying, my God, what do they know that I don't know? Or do you, as the Chinese authorities are doing, do it piecemeal, bit by bit? This is bit by bit, is it not? Mark? It is, but also I think I mean actually to to be honest, the uh, uh, this Evergrande uh, liquidation that scares off investors more than the the, the consumers themselves. I I, I I don't think it's like people who just worry about. Of course, if they have. Uh, bought and paid already for an apartment from from Evergrande and and they sure they sure will be very worried but this is not new I and mean, this has been going on for quite some time already uh, what we can still see of course is that these issues related to real estate markets uh, are also partly uh, regulated and and uh, driven locally so we've had during the weekend now some for instance some latest um, relaxation in Guangzhou uh, and why is that so? Is that because, of course, it's a big import. It's a very important source of uh, financing and funding for the local governments. So I think it's, it it adds to the complexity of the topic. Is that it's? I mean, clearly, of course, it is uh, somewhat centrally run, uh, but at the same time, the implementation on a local level might be quite different. And we have situations where some cities are completely desperate, especially after years of of weak growth and 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 costly COVID policies. Uh, um, uh, measures to be implemented. So uh, we also have this this element of, of complication. At the same time, I mean, the market itself has been quite restrained in terms. I mean, there've been there've been like regulations and restrictions in in many places. So they could ease the sentiment and and support the the, the consumer sentiment by just doing some small things in some of these uh, bigger cities. At least I, I think I, we, we should be less worried maybe about the bigger cities and more worried about the second third tier cities where where there I think the situation is is fairly grim and and the government the governments do not have much to uh, to stimulate and and support this sentiment from consumers. Mark, the news also today, which is sort of linked to this, isn't it, and just shows how difficult and how widespread this problem is, is the news that uh, China's distressed asset managers 
themselves now need to be bailed out. They're going to be taken over by the Sovereign Wealth Fund. And they were set up in turn back in uh, after the Asian financial crisis to help some of the banks out of trouble and take on their um, their bad debts. And instead, they've expanded uh, beyond their remit. One of the areas they expanded into, of course, was buying the debt of China's property um, companies. So this is all very much linked, isn't it? And this is all sort of like sort of snowballing at the moment. On top of the shadow banks. Uh, having some issues as well, so yeah, it 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 uh, it increases increases the concerns and the worries, and is it's it's psychological impact as well as everything else. Sentiment is is going to be is going to be affected, and so I as I suggested before, I think this puts added pressure even more on the Chinese government to try to at least send signals that they're 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 moving toward figuring this out, even if they're not going to do that right away. Okay. I don't know if they'll, they'll be able to do that. Let's see. All right, I read well, recently, somebody, uh, <clears throat> sorry, I thought it was a good one. It was like, just to say, basically, we have this issue, like a twin disappointment, disappointment <laughs> in the macro and disappointment in the policy. And yeah. and we all know uh, the reason for, for both of them. And, and the question is, of course, you cannot really, uh, uh, you cannot resolve both at the same time. Uh, but, but, I think what investors are expecting and hoping for is to get at least a sign that one of this uh, disappointment might suddenly, you know, like not suddenly, but maybe just gradually reduce and not much is needed uh, to, you know, to create actually uh, uh, a much more positive sentiment when you are so negative. That's something we've learned after, you know, <laughs> investing for 26 years in, in energy markets. It's when the, the sentiment is at its poorest that you might get the the best opportunities, uh, but but you need to really, I mean, you need to navigate here very carefully because uh, uh, clearly uh, there, there are a lot of issues. So it's like going, you know, walking around on a on a, a, a landmines and and just uh, uh, trying to, uh, to 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 stay to be safe, so to say. So uh, complicated for for investors for sure. And and you have all this situation, and at the same time you have in the US, which seems just to go from strength to strength. So uh, it is for. For investors like us, who are specializing in, in emerging markets, uh, sometimes of a, you know it, it feels like uh, quite challenging to keep talking about all the good things you can see in emerging market because there are still a lot of good things in emerging markets. When you have this level of concerns and and uh, things in the U.S. that almost almost seems like everything is is just going in the right direction and 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 very very strong. So. All right. Well, while we're on the topic of emerging markets, we've had a request from a, a regular listener to the show, Bruce Simon, has asked us to talk about um, the expansion of the BRICS um, alliance and what that means for those economies and how if they're going to be ending up competing with some of the more developed economies and whether, um, in fact, they're going to dethrone um, the, the US dollar. Um, if you if you have any um, topics that you want us to discuss, of course, please do let me know. Go to peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com and we're happy to try and answer any questions you have. But Barry, BRICS, the, the, the expansion of BRICS, we've spoken about this um, before, but do you see this as um, ultimately challenging the Western world of, of G7 countries and, and, look, and ultimately dethroning the US dollar? Well, I think part of what you said is indeed the objective. This reflects a perception among all the participants in BRICS and those who are lining up to join that you have a multipolar world and that uh, the dominance of the G7 countries in Europe, Japan, United States, North America uh, is in fact not appropriate for the world in which we live. Uh, 
The problem is that uh, the BRICS countries are not unified. And as Mark can tell us, uh, there's, there's very little to hold them together. But if you go back to the 1960s, when you had you know, the group of 77 and you had the non-aligned movement that was really powerful, or at least perceived to be powerful in an emerging new world, uh, this is the reincarnation of that. China is the dominant player. India does not want China to be the dominant player, and they're both members. But for their own reasons, they see value in BRICS. South Africa is a bit player. Brazil is a bit player. And Argentina, which was asked to join and agreed to join before their election, Mr. Malay in Argentina says, no, thank you, we're out of here. So you've got now the new members, which are the UAE. Now, that's important because they're cash rich. And you've got Egypt, which has a lot of people. And then you've got Iran, which is sort of a, you know, an outlier. And finally, Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to see how they're going to unify and do something together. Now, you mentioned, can they displace the dollar? They would like to have, and certainly China would like to have, the renminbi gain. And India's perspective is they want local currency in trade, and they're probably getting that. There's been progress made. The tangible effect of 15 of these annual summits of the BRICS is that they have a new development bank based in Shanghai, which is beginning to lend money. That's, that's a plus. And they would like to have something that would uh, rival the payment system that is dominant in the West. So I think it's something that would be mistaken to dismiss, but it would be very equally mistaken to overrate the prospects of this new entity displacing the dollar or becoming dominant. It's not going to be dominant in the global economy, and it's not going to be dominant in payments. The way you described this, Barry, the idea originally of BRICS was it was an economic um, concept, wasn't it, to sort of address the growing weight of some of the, the major emerging economies. But really now, it seems to be a much more political concept and a, less of an economic concept these, these days. Do you see that's the way it's going? Yeah, I do. But again, it's hard for the countries to really unify. I think the real test is what, what these new countries do. I mean, the United Arab Emirates is a very significant addition. Wouldn't you say, Mark? Yes. I mean, you, but you Saudi as well. Yeah, Saudi. Yeah, you forgot, Barry, you forgot Saudi Arabia. And that's a yeah. very important yeah. omission. I'm sorry, because Saudi <laughs> is even richer. So, yeah. And, and the fact is... Look what the Chinese did with Saudi Arabia and Iran. I mean, putting together a kind of cooperative framework for those two countries that are always at each other's throats. This is positive. So I think it would be a mistake to dismiss the BRICS. Mark? Yeah, I don't. They, they definitely shouldn't be dismissed. Uh, they were they were. This is the 15th, their 15th anniversary. So it happens to be, of course, it came out of a of a, a paper by Jim O'Neill, then with Goldman Sachs now. Baron O'Neill of Gatley uh, over 20 years ago about this, and it was taken up. But they never have fit together very well. Look, the new membership now adds a lot of adds adds uh, about 28.5 trillion. It's now 28.1 percent global output. But G7 is 43 percent of global output, even even so at this point. So that's that's one measure. But what Barry 
what Barry mentioned are, are is the key. Uh, yes, they're going to they're going to. This is the global South. They are going to challenge uh, the existing order and the existing institutions, and they're not alone. They they have they have allies who, who want to do this, and a lot of countries that are uncomfortable with the U.S. dollar still dominating as it has for for eighty years or so, not counting anyway. But I think what the BRICS at this point look there they look. The new combination looks economically stronger, but in some ways geopolitically weaker. It may may help rebalance the global order, but it's probably not going to replace it, including in, in areas, including in the areas of currency, at least at this point. When you just think of the, the different political systems and cultural systems, there are democracies, there are autocratic monarchies, authoritarian regimes, and Islamic theocracy, of course, Iran. Uh, who, you know, their difficulties in reaching consensus, which all these groups have. Saying this, it can't be dis dismissed, dismissed at all. And certainly one of those areas that they're going to try to make movements in is, um, is currency. But still, 90% of all foreign exchange transactions are still in the U.S. dollar. Um, the renminbi only accounts for 3% uh, of... of uh, of of exchange reserves at this point, you know, it's, I mean, sorry, of, of, uh, of, of transactions. And so it's still in a very strong position. They're going to make moves and I think they're going to cooperate to a greater degree, but I think especially the relationship between India and China is key. And frankly, it's not very good. And they're, the, they are the dominant players. Go ahead, Kareem. Yeah, no, I just wanted to mention the, uh, I agree with you that, I mean, first of all, it is more like an informal club. And, yes. uh, but the reason there is this club is that also we definitely need to see whether or not, you know, the multilateral institutions that we have today should be reformed. And there's been, again, recent calling for that, even by, by the, the Secretary General of the United Nations. Uh, because if you say that, oh, well, it is only like 25 or 30 percent of, of GDP, but it's a much bigger part of the population population, for instance, and also it is a much bigger part of what the economy will be like in the future. So when and when you have to prepare for thinking about about the growth of, of, of the world, that's what you should be focusing on. So clearly what we have, a lot of the institutions we have today are reflecting the past and we need to have more institutions reflecting today's and, and the future. So, and I think it is one, it's, it's one of the key motives actually for this uh, cooperation to, uh, to, to take place. But the, as, as you both mentioned, I mean, the fact that there are governments with vastly divergent foreign policies will make it very tricky actually to, to do something about it. And, and by the way, let's not forget that there's also Russia, which actually is heading the, the, the BRICS, I think, this year. Uh, we're not even talking about it right now, but I mean, clearly, uh, the, the, the fact that you have a, a, a more cooperation be, between Russia and some countries such as Iran is clearly something that, that probably the U.S. Is, is, is watching fairly closely for, for, uh, for all uh, reasons that we can uh, Karine, I, can I agree imagine. with everything you just said. And I would add uh, that BRICS have been assisted by two own goals from the United States and the West. The first being the exploding United States debt problem, which certainly undermines long term the role of the dollar. Secondly, the sanctions levied against Russia, seizing their foreign currency assets after the outbreak of war with Ukraine 
is a very dangerous precedent. And now you find the G7 countries contemplating actively taking the proceeds from those, what is it, $600 billion or is it $300 billion? $300 billion. $300 billion. And, yeah. and, and giving it to Ukraine. This force, the, the effect of, of those sanctions, one effect is you've pushed Russia and China close together. So, I mean, th this... This is a plus for the BRICS, and it's not to be dismissed. It's a real test for Indian and Chinese diplomacy. Yeah, it's not just Russia and China closer together. It's the whole BRICS. It certainly is accelerated. And as Kareem said, the the BRICS countries are going to be growing much faster than G7 countries if we're right about forecasts going forward. So that balance is going to going to change as well. It's how quickly it's there still have to be alternatives. They have to be alternatives to the system, and we we still haven't seen that yet. But certainly, it's going to change and going to put more focus on the on the weaknesses that Barry just cited and and Karine has mentioned as as, as well as in the uh, traditional system, including multilateral institutions, which are in dire need of being reformed. I mean, the WTO is hardly operable anymore in many ways. Mm -hmm. So, for example. Okay. Well, let's move on. Um, the EU's climate chief has warned the EU mustn't be lured into a false narrative that action against global warming is undermining the competitiveness of European businesses as Brussels fights a backlash against its ambitious environmental laws. Uh, the uh, the EU is planning to cut greenhouse gas emissions uh, by 2040 uh, by 90 uh, by 90 percent. And Wopper Hoekstra, I'm sure I pronounced his name wrong, but he is uh, the Dutch climate commissioner for the, for the EU, has said that despite significant worries, um, he was absolutely convinced Europe could continue to have a world-class, second-to-none business environment, and that wasn't in opposition to having a thriving business community. Now, I know, Corinne, you'll have a few things to say about this, but it is a concern that's being raised by businesses, not just in the EU, is it? It's uh, other parts well, of the world as well. <laughs> absolutely. And of course, it's started in the US. And surprise, surprise, the US is also now the largest producer of oil in the world and, and also the largest uh, LNG ex uh, exporter. So uh, though clearly, uh, there are a lot of uh, headwinds uh, and, uh, uh, and we would love to have more tailwinds at a time when, you know, this is, this is 2024. We had last year uh, the hottest year ever uh, on the planet. We have a, a huge amount of money uh, that needs to be invested into both uh, so-called climate mitigation but also climate adaptation because whatever however, whatever we're doing now we know that we're already uh, going to be into in trouble so we need to create a much more so-called climate resilience around the world and so clearly I you know I'm as a chief sustainability officer and 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 working a lot on this with uh, with companies and and uh, uh, as well with our clients uh, I cannot say this is good news I, I I wish we wouldn't have that kind even of discussions because it is we're spending more time on it instead of actually really acting and 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 time is short but at the same time um i personally also and i just recently met with some uh, top rep uh, high representative from from the eu that uh, came to hong kong for the asia financial forum i think europe is is actually uh, uh, very ambitious and is and and we stay very strong in its uh, in in its uh, you know implementation of all these ambitions uh, the the uh, the issue here is really that we know that this is going to be it's such a transformative like uh, um, 
time we're living in and uh, there will be there's this concept of just transition which is really important to remind of is the fact that again we know that through this because of this transformation some groups of people uh, will be suffering more than others and and our ability as and the ability of governments to make sure that the pain is 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 less than 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 it could be uh, is super important otherwise we're going to have all kind of movements, which are basically populist movements, uh, about you know, uh, because they will say, oh, we're going to have to pay higher taxes, or we're going to have to, we have to borrow more money. It's going to be co- more costly. So let's not do that. Same is happening right now in the UK, by the way, and 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 the same. But there's one place where it's not happening. It's actually China, which I find it positive that we don't have this because. <laughs> Because they already like they've gone through uh, that before, and and uh, I think we we uh, we see uh, more, not less, actually uh, climate action ambitions uh, coming from China, uh, but it, but it is complicated, um, and the um, what of course it's like always like you can also talk about it the problem as such as saying there will be more and more people that are against this, but there is also. Another big trend, actually, within within uh, this movement, which is the fact that you have more as well climate mitigation action. So ba- litigation. So basically, you also have people being sued because they're not doing enough, and they will be and governments are being sued because they're not doing enough, especially by, by younger people. So you have this, you know, this this uh, balancing act. And at the same time, you have a situation where it's actually been very good to be invested in in oil companies and oil stocks, and mm. uh, and uh, with the tension in the Middle East, the oil price keeps rising as well. So, so you have uh, yeah, you have a lot of things mm. at play here for sure. Barry, in the US, this is going to be um, it is already, isn't it? It's an election issue, not least because Donald Trump is making it one. He says, um, Barry, that uh, he's going to tear up all of Joe Biden's um, green policies, and he's presenting it exactly in this way that it's a choice between being green or having companies that are thriving and profitable. He's saying that this is destroying companies and destroying businesses. So this is going to be front and centre, isn't it, of the of the election campaign? And it's going to be yes. a foreign trade. It's a foreign trade issue as well, both in the yeah, EU absolutely. and in Europe, uh, uh, and and with all these uh, investigations and and sanct- potential mm. sanctions. So, and uh, so, yeah, definitely. Barry. Yeah, I think that. Um, the business community is forward thinking and is active, and that's a plus. So Donald Trump, yes, surprise, surprise, the country's divided. Uh, will that view of Trump to tear up these agreements, to push things back, will that prevail? I doubt it, because I think the business community and increasingly the public at large knows that action is required. But uh, it's, it's just another divide in our body politic. It's a concern for, for companies here. And we just did a uh, critical issues outlook um, among our companies for, for uh, 2024. And two of the issues, one was, uh, there were several issues that one that had to do with IT and so on. One was what we talked about earlier, China property and and and, and the China economic system and What's going to happen to that? Obviously, that's big, but also Trump too. And this wasn't political; it was just the kind of issues that we've raised. It's it has to do with the environment, but it also has to do with trade and other areas and the organizations. However, however weakened they are, uh, what would happen to them going forward under under that sort of scenario? Uh, very uncertain, and of course, the cliche that businesses don't like uncertainty still still true. I think to a great extent. And now I think they feel uh, it's even a, a situation has worsened. 
It's difficult for companies, isn't it? Because they're coming under pressure from all sorts of directions. I mean, the BP, they had a pledge to reduce their oil and gas production by 25% by 2030. I think they were the first energy company to come up with such a pledge. Um, And now they've got hedge funds taking them to court and trying to get them to cut uh, that that pledge. Um, So, you know, they're, they're in a difficult position, aren't they, some of these companies? And that, yes, and as but I said, there are also some uh, companies which are being taken to court by by people who are saying they're not doing enough. I mean, mm. eventually, I mean, we we just cannot build a future based on resources that are being depleted. That that's that's very clear. So so the the question really is about how long term one can be, uh, and and we need to uh, just act together as well. So, uh, I, you know, I I, I wish I wouldn't be too depressed here because I really think that we have no choice. I mean, we cannot just like see as if as if the world would end tomorrow. And, and uh, the work that needs to be done really is about trying to find ways to finance this, this, this as I was saying, you know, old, old kind of investment that need to be put into, into uh, uh, clean tech, renewable energy, all kind of like green transition uh, uh, sectors which are uh, needed and at the same time uh, invest money into to climate adaptation for uh, all the, the, the places and the countries in the world which are very vulnerable. A lot of them are, by the way, in the global south. And uh, so it's circling back to our discussion before. Uh, there is, um, there's, there is, that's the highest, I mean, that's, I've never seen, a, I don't think we've had a situation in the world before where there was such a high need of, of getting together and acting together. And it's unfortunately at a time where it seems that it's the hardest uh, with all the issues we have in the world. So, I think the view that Corrine just outlined is largely that of the Chinese leadership, as, as you mentioned before. I mean, it's not perfect. Of course, they still pollute quite a lot, but they do view it as an existential issue. Yes. And U.S.-China relations, you could argue, maybe have been the most productive in that in that area, maybe certainly not enough. And I know the the two the two main uh, negotiators on both sides are are leaving right now. But at the same time, it shows that at least there's a recognition of the importance of this, and at least that's promising. But the, uh, the rest and of I the think it's from, also yeah. thank goodness for the European Union and for Europe yeah. as a continent, because I don't think there's any doubt the Europeans lead on this, just as they lead on quality of life. And the Americans are are divided, but the business community is far ahead of the government. And the problem in the U.S. government, of course, is bureaucracy. You know, you can have all kinds of mandates, but uh, the public turns cynical because it's very difficult to implement. Hmm. Actually, an interesting um, data point. We just had the numbers from uh, a fund, like so, fund sales in in uh, globally by Morningstar during the last quarter. Uh, I mean, for the first time, we have a situation where it's been actually a decrease in uh, in uh, for these so-called ESG funds globally. But it's mainly because of the outflows in the US, while in the in the EU it keeps gr- growing. So, sure. just think it's interesting to see that uh, seems that not only <laughs> not only only the regulators, but also people in, in Europe uh, have uh, different perspectives on, on this topic. They are more that's not shocking. And that's not shocking, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, finally, the big, the big uh, economic news of the week is going to be the Fed. They will start their two-day meeting later t- today. Um, Traders in the Fed Fund's futures markets are signing an almost 98% probability the Fed isn't going to cut rates today. 
but they are pricing a 45% chance of a rate cut in March, although that is down quite a lot from where it was just a week earlier. It was 85% a week ago. Barry, the one thing that, of course, is standing out just how fast inflation um, is is coming down. The core personal consumption expenditure index now 2.9%, below 3% now uh, for the first time since 2021. Um, The Fed really has got to take a bow here, hasn't it? Well, or has it been lucky? It's not their custom to take a bow, and they won't do so. Uh, But I'm sure they're happy. They're very happy. And the trends, as you suggest, are indeed going in the right direction, particularly on inflation, but also on employment. We get an employment report on Friday. This meeting will be important because it will gauge the signals of where we're headed. There won't be any rate change from this meeting, probably not from March. But we do know from officials talking that they would like to decline in rates sometime this year. So I, I think that's what we'll look for when we have Jay Powell's press conference on Wednesday. If um, if there's going to be a rate cut in March, as um, markets are expecting, the Fed has really got to telegraph it this week, hasn't it? It's got to be talking about it now. It can't just turn up at the next meeting in March and, and suddenly cut rates. Yeah, that's right. And I think that uh, indeed... I will be very surprised if uh, Jay Powell gives any clue that he is leaning towards a rate cut in March. But that could happen. The fact is that um, you've got a very strong economy here. And I think that uh, Fed members, FOMC members are happy. Mm. But the the, the markets, though. uh... Sorry, Mark. No, I was just going to say, I'm probably the least uh, expert in, in this area of anyone here. But at the same time, I'm sort of amazed that it's still 45% that think so. I, you know, I may be completely wrong, but I would think the chances, unless something very dramatic happens, are very remote. I, I'm amazed I I'm amazed that the markets yeah. still think there's going to be 133 basis points of cuts in 2024. It's just hard to imagine, isn't it, how the Fed is going to do that unless something bad happens to the economy. Yeah. And it's already priced in, and it's actually one of the good arguments about why people should look into emerging markets, because we have a completely different cycle over there. This is good news, though, isn't it, Corinne, for emerging markets? It is. This is, it this is. is great Absolutely. news for emerging yes. markets. So, Barry, what do, what do you think overall for this year? I mean, I mean, you could almost argue the economy is so good. Why do you need any rate cuts at the moment? You could argue, couldn't you, that this is about the right level for interest rates? Well, I think... Uh, Economists generally see a slowdown ahead. I mean, that's what higher rates are supposed to produce, and that is happening. Uh, Let's watch to see if there are personal bankruptcies as a result of people incurring too much debt, and particularly in the property sector, commercial real estate. If there's that could be the event that could trigger, you know, a faster pace of rate cuts. But uh, I think that the housing market is held up as well as it has is a strong plus. So we actually have positive interest rates for the first time in 20 years. And I agree with, I think, what is a consensus among us, that uh, early rate cuts are unlikely. Mm. But consumer spending's holding up, the jobs market is holding up, the housing market is holding up. I mean, this is not a soft landing. It isn't any sort of landing at all at the moment, is there? There's been no the setback I think whatsoever. We're on, we're, on, we're on the runway. We've landed. Mm. 
Okay. Well, we, of course, we'll, uh, we'll bring you all the latest news on the Fed meeting on Thursday's Money Talk. Thank you all very much. You heard there Barry Wood, who is our US economics correspondent over in Washington, D.C. Corinne Hearn, who's partner and Chief Sustainability Officer at East Capital Group, and then Mark Michelson, who is Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening this morning. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll have more business and finance headlines to discuss them. I'll be joined by Enzio von Fahl, who's Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Nitin Dialdas, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. And if you want some more information on some of the top stories from the region, please take a look at my daily newsletter on peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. See you tomorrow. Money Talk 